9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Roscoff, coming to you from New York City, and we are joined today by a terrific group with a lot to discuss, uh, including Natasha Bertrand of Politico, uh, who is also an analyst for NBC and MSNBC. Hi, Natasha. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks, thanks for being here. Also, Michael Weiss, editor-at-large for The Daily Beast. Hi, Michael. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. Uh, and Susan Hennessy of Lawfare, co-author of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. Hi, Susan. Hi. And Josh Campbell, former FBI agent, CNN analyst, and author of Crossfire Hurricane, Inside Donald Trump's War on the FBI. Hi, Josh. Hey, David. Great to be with you. So what I wanted to start with is the following. With the, this week, we had a release of a thousand-page um, document from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, which detailed uh, the, uh, the the Trump-Russia case, provided some new insights, um, and although you know left some gaps, not quite definitive in my view. Uh, once again, reminded us that the only hoax associated with the Russia hoax is the Russia, the idea that it's a hoax. It's not a hoax. Um, I'd just like to start by going around to everybody and getting your take on what do you think was added by this and what do you think was significant. I first learned about it from a long Twitter thread, a really good one, by Natasha. So let me start with you, Natasha. Thanks. Yeah. So I think that there were a lot of new things in this report. Um, probably the biggest takeaway, though, is just how far the Senate Intel Committee was willing to go in saying that Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman, posed a really grave counterintelligence threat to the campaign, stemming primarily from his close relationship with what the committee described as a Russian intelligence officer who is Konstantin Kalimnik. Um, that is much further than the special counsel was willing to go in describing Kalimnik. And it's also further than he was willing to go in describing um, how much of a threat that Paul Manafort posed to the campaign and to U.S. national security. Um, so that really jumped out at me. And there were a number of details in there about Roger Stone as well, the Trump um, campaign advisor, a longtime uh, confidant of the president, that Mueller perhaps was not able to go into or, we, or was redacted in the report because of the uh, trial that was going to um, start later in the year. But there's new information in there, such as Roger Stone drafting pro-Russia tweets for the president, right, at, at the time when he was trying to get WikiLeaks to drop new material. What is the connection there? Um, and just basic, you know, implications of the president here as well, where the, the Senate Intel Committee determined that he knew that he spoke to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks in 2016. And he was, you know, he had multiple conversations about it with Stone and members of his campaign. And yet he told the special counsel that he did not recall. And the Senate Intel Committee kind of calls him out on that directly. 
and says, there's really no way that he could have not, not remembered this. So we find it very unbelievable. So there were a number of things in there that I think just went a lot further um, than Mueller did. And that just might be because Mueller's mandate was a criminal investigation, right? Whereas um, the Senate Intel Committee wasn't. Michael. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And naming Kalimnik as an active Russian intelligence officer, and there's enough, let, let us say, circumstantial evidence to suggest that the service he works for is the GRU, Russian military intelligence, as opposed to the SVR, the FSB. Um, his education, the fact that he attended the um, the Military Language Institute in 1987, which was a feeder into the, the Russian military intelligence service. Uh, and also the report names him as possibly ha- being connected with the GRU's hack and leak operation in the DNC. And what's interesting about that, apart from being a, a massive disclosure in and of itself, is you'll recall there were two different Russian intelligence services that penetrated DNC servers. The first was the SVR, which is the Civilian Foreign Intelligence Service. They got there first, and they waged simply an espionage operation. So they were just snooping around reading Democrats' correspondence. The GRU, also known as Fancy Bear, penetrated the servers later, I think it was two or three months after the fact, and instead of simply reading the stuff, they exfiltrated all of the digital correspondence and then passed it along to WikiLeaks. Now, this report also goes a step further than Mueller in naming WikiLeaks as, I believe, a likely witting accomplice of the Russian government. So the idea now that WikiLeaks can maintain this air of being a a transparency uh, journalistic enterprise has been dealt a very severe blow and one that probably will impact Julian Assange's extradition hearing in the UK. Um, so there are massive revelations in this report. I agree completely with Natasha. It goes well beyond what Mueller was willing to state. Now, whether that's because of the, net more, the, the narrower parameters of the Mueller investigation being, as Natasha put it, a criminal investigation and the Senate subcommittee doing more counterintelligence uh, investigating, uh, that, that could be one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is, frankly, the Senate subcommittee investigation was waged a bit longer than Mueller. Uh, and there are things in here, such as disclosures about Natalia Veselnitskaya, known as the Trump Tower lawyer, um, her being connected to the Russian government and also the Russian intelligence structures, which have come to light since Mueller, I think, wrapped the final draft of his report. And they came to life namely because Natalia Veselnitskaya's emails were leaked publicly. And a lot of what's in those emails form the basis for the Southern District of New York's indictment of her on obstruction of justice uh, charges. So, you know, in a sense, this this committee or the subcommittee picks up where Mueller left off and also fills in more gaps that were at least speculated about but not known. And again, one can say, well, they're, 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 they're simply, um, you know, spitballing here. But these assertions are pretty unambiguous. I mean, Kalimnik, as an active Russian intelligence officer and the long-time, long-standing business partner of Paul Manafort, puts a Russian spy pretty much at the heart of the Trump campaign, somebody who was receiving polling information. We don't know the specificity of what kind of data he was receiving, but that information will have only been transferred to Moscow and indeed could have also informed how other structures in the Russian government or parish state structures, such as the uh, Internet Research Agency, decided to strategically target certain states in terms of influence peddling and the dissemination of disinformation. So, I, I mean, I think this sort of buries the lead, this report, you know, and unfortunately it's not going to get the kind of media coverage that Mueller got because of the timing. It was dropped in the middle of the DNC. Um, people are frankly exhausted, I think, with the subject matter, but to read it closely is to really be kind of stunned by the information it contains. Susan. 
Yeah, so um, I agree with both of those. Um, I, I certainly think sort of the uh, new detail for me, um, there, there was significantly, the mo- there was the most new content was certainly about sort of Paul Manafort. Not surprising because this was uh, the fifth volume of the report really focused on that counterintelligence threat. Um, that said, I think actually the, the relatively limited new information about Roger Stone to me actually seems the most significant. Um, so one thing to keep in mind is um, we have the Mueller report uh, as made public whenever it was it, it was first released. And then we have the unredacted Mueller report, sort of bits and pieces of which uh, have, have trickled out over time. Uh, and then additional information uh, contained in the Mueller report uh, that have been revealed through the sort of the Roger Stone litigation proceedings. And so, you know, if you actually put together, all right, here's every piece of public information and how does this advance the ball? Um, it's relatively limited, but those tiny steps are really significant ones. And that's that this is the first time that the SSCI or any part of the government has laid out, all right, here was the communications between Donald Trump and Roger Stone, this many minutes on this days, these were the phone calls, really making a pretty unambiguous case that uh, it's not plausible that Donald Trump and Roger Stone did not talk about WikiLeaks and, uh, and upcoming releases. And it's not plausible that Donald Trump didn't uh, would not remember uh, communications of that volume and of that significance, right? No uh, sort of you know reasonably functioning human being could possibly have uh, forgotten something so significant and therefore um, really does lean forward on, they don't use the word lie, but say Donald Trump lied under oath. Um, we already sort of knew that from the Mueller report, right? You know, I think people could have put two and two together. Um, you know, that said, in the intervening period, of course, Donald Trump has commuted Roger Stone's sentence. Um, and so whenever we think about new behavior, new activity that has occurred uh, sort of in the intervening period, um, Donald Trump Commuting Roger Stone's sentence in order to uh, repay him for not testifying against him uh, or to encourage Roger Stone to further obstruct the proceedings. This is a, sort of a continuation of a pattern of conduct. I, I think it's really significant. People should be focused on it. That said, um, apart from sort of the specific details that are going to jump out to people like us who, who've been sort of focused on the nitty gritty of the story for a very long period of time, um, at a broad sense, this is a bipartisan report. And no matter what Marco Rubio says about we didn't find any collusion. The substance of the report is absolutely damning. And it is a bipartisan report with Republicans and Democrats signing on to its fundamental findings that validate the Mueller, the, the Mueller investigation, the, the, the general findings of the Mueller report, and even go further and explain why exactly the FBI would have been so concerned in the first place, really would have been in dereliction of duty to not, uh, to not investigate this really, really clear uh, threat and and really concerning behavior. Um, And the timing of that is important because part of the 2020 Trump campaign strategy um, really does appear to be sort of a a broad assault on uh, the legitimacy of organizations like the FBI and the Department of Justice, but also on the the findings of the Mueller report and on the origins of the investigation itself. And so right as a moment in which Bill Barr and others and sort of the Fox News ecosystem are really gearing up to try and kind of hit hard and really sort of push this narrative that, hey, everybody's a Russia hoaxer, and there was nothing there, and deficiencies in the Steele do- 
dossier, sort of it's all a house of cards. Here is Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, Roy Blunt signing their names to a document that says, oh yeah, no, everything Mueller found really did happen. And by the way, it's even worse than that. Um, there's a lot of political spin from Republicans trying to distance themselves and misrepresent their own report. But at the end of the day, it's their names on this document. And I, I think that's kind of the big immediate significance of it. So I think that tees it up well for you, Josh, because of the references to the FBI. But what are, what are your reactions? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, two, two things, two main takeaways. First, you look at uh, the findings from the uh, Senate Intelligence Report itself and compare that with how that flies in the face of uh, all the dishonesty that we've heard from the president and those in his orbit uh, since the Mueller investigation began. And I think that, you know, it's important for those of us, as Susan mentioned, who kind of live and breathe all of, you know, these topics day in and day out, is to try to look at this through the lens of uh, your, you know, your listeners right now. And on one hand, you have uh, all of us, we just went around the horn here describing how damning this report is and all this information. But yet when you talk to the president, you hear from him and those in his orbit, uh, they will look you straight in the eye and say that he did nothing wrong. And, and you know, that, that's obviously, it's, it's uh, really illuminated this campaign of attack against organizations like the FBI, against Robert Mueller. And I think that's the second piece as well, is really trying to dissect why has the president and those that are around him, why have they been engaged in so much of an effort to try to destroy the credibility of the FBI and the Department of Justice? And we continue to see time and time again, both from the Mueller report, obviously the uh, you know slew of, uh, of court records that, that came out of the Mueller investigation and all the people in Trump world who uh, have found themselves in legal jeopardy. But now this bipartisan report uh, basically saying the exact same thing that, you know, although the president says there was no collusion, you can go time and again and look at all the troubling instances here from uh, the meeting at Trump Tower with Jared Kushner and Don Jr. meeting with Russians. And this goes back to, you know, what I and others have been saying, you know, since the beginning is people look at that and say, well, that meeting did didn't actually result in anything. And so the president and his allies say, well, therefore, you know, there was nothing wrong. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Just because you are bad at colluding, you're terrible at colluding, doesn't mean that you're righteous and what you're doing uh, is above board. I mean, what we saw there was a campaign for the presidency willing to accept dirt from a foreign adversary. And I think we have to keep pointing that out time and time again. I won't go into Manafort, that's been described here at length, uh, but that is also an important focus, is to think that the person that was, you know, for a period of time running the president's campaign that's been so closely tied to Donald Trump was also, uh, you know, involved with a Russian intelligence officer. What I hope the listeners do is whenever you hear the president say, this is a hoax, or, you know, he's, he likes to say Russia, 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 uh, as though this is, you know, you know, there they go again, talking about that. Yeah, I hope the listeners actually stop and realize what the president is saying, what those who have investigated this are saying. Uh, that is that there was this pattern of activity. And the last thing I'll say is that it's, you know, this isn't, this doesn't give a pass to the FBI. In fact, the report actually, you know, delves into some of the problems. But you look at even Carter Page, who, you know, there was this um, of, of findings that, that we've all covered as of late, where the FBI was engaged in wrongdoing as it related to uh, electronic surveillance of Carter Page. But the report itself actually says that the FBI's uh, reason for investigating him in the first place was righteous, that he was sketchy as hell. Uh, you know, these people that he was associated with, the Russians, regardless of whether he was a source for, for CIA or any other intelligence entity, that was worth looking at. And so, 
my my bottom line is that the more facts we learn, and especially those that come forward in a bipartisan way, really give us more information, more fodder uh, to, to really look at what the president has been saying in their messaging and understand that this has just been a campaign of dishonesty. The president says that these agencies were engaged in wrongdoing, that he's been the victim. Look at, you know, a thousand page report. Uh, look at the Mueller investigation and everything that we've seen. Uh, it really turns that on its head. And people can see for themselves that for the first time, I think, in, in you know, at least in our lifetime, probably in, in the history of this country, you have a presidential administration and, and you know, those who got him there in the campaign that were willing to sidle up uh, to a foreign adversary in order to get there, which is still stunning here, even three and a half years later. So let me go back around to everybody with with a question that I think has to be on the mind of 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 most people who are watching this with with any kind of attentiveness at all. Um, so you know, Natasha, if you look at this report, you say, "Well, this is a bipartisan report," and it said that the president's campaign um, chairman was in daily contact with a member of the GRU. It said that there was. Um, a, you know, a, an awareness of this interaction that talks about what Stone did, uh, as referenced earlier um, by Susan. It talks about the the ways that the investigation was obstructed, uh, evidence withheld, um, and, and and we saw in the Mueller report other evidence, certainly massive evidence of obstruction, um, and yet. Roger Stone has a sentence commuted. Paul Manafort's not in jail anymore. There, uh, you know, Donald Trump is is still doing what he's doing. And in fact, the Russians are actively at work doing their thing again in 2020. The Senate having withheld funding for things that might have stopped them. Uh, the president waging war on anybody who is critical of him, like the FBI, like the intelligence community, um, it, throughout this whole thing. So it seems like there is a big story here, right? Which is the president colluded with the Russians. There's no question he did. You know, there's, and a lot of people have said it subsequent to that, but there was collusion there. Swalwell, other people have, have noted that. Um, but in some ways, the bigger story is since then, the entire United States system of justice broke down. Nothing happened. It was completely okay. And I just, you've been covering, all of you guys have been covering this. What, you know, where do you lay the blame for that? Well, how did we end up in this situation where president can betray the country, gain the highest office, and then use that office to cover up his crimes? So start with Natasha. And let's, you know, if everybody keep it to two or three minutes, we'll get around, you know, several more rounds in here. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty tough question to answer. Um, I think it has a lot to do um, with the president's enablers, right? Um, you know, not only in the administration, but also in Congress. Um, every time the president does something particularly outrageous, like pardon or commute Roger Stone's sentence, for example, um, there is no real sense of outrage from Republicans on the Hill who might be able to kind of hold him in check in that sense. Um, everyone kind of moved on very quickly after the sentence was commuted, even though even Bill Barr, the attorney general who intervened to try to lessen Roger Stone's sentence and sentencing recommendations said that he thought that the conviction of Roger Stone was just. Um, so I, I think that it is just a general sense of, um, you know, a, a Trump pur purging um, 
officials and experts at every level of the government, intel officials um, and whistleblowers, for example. That's been a major problem, especially in the intel community. And no one um, has been able to stand up to him, especially again on the Hill, to any of these to any of this behavior. Um, I do, you know, we have to also remember that Paul Manafort, who was due to serve out the rest of his sentence in prison, is now serving it from home confinement. Um, so it's it's not even the people who committed like serious, you know, um, financial fraud that are. Um, you know, treated the same as, as others if they're friends of the president. Um, so I don't really know how to summarize how we got to this place. I think it was just kind of a slow erosion and a slow desensitization over time um, of the president's politicization of the Justice Department and increasingly of the intel community. Michael, what do you think? How, how, did, how did it happen? Yeah, I mean, if I can leave aside the manifold moral and personality deficiencies of the president and, and how he's sort of gradually attrited the institutions of, of justice and accountability in this country. I think one of the problems has been uh, everybody feels a sense of anticlimax about the Trump-Russia saga. Um, everyone sort of, myself included, poured over every last morsel of the steel dossier, hoping that, you know, a pea-stained mattress from the real Ritz-Carlton would be smuggled into the studios of MSNBC or CNN. And when that didn't happen, people felt, well, where's the, it was sort of like Geraldo opening, um, uh, you know, Al Capone's, Al Capone's safe. Like it was empty, right? But it wasn't empty. This is the thing. And, and you know, even all of these people who've been indicted and convicted and, and imprisoned for crimes that are somewhat less than, say, being an agent of influence or being a, 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 a sort of compensated spy on, on behalf of a hostile foreign government. I mean, one of the things I've, I've learned, and, and I'm, I'm writing a book on the history of Russian military intelligence, and, and again, the GRU really does seem to have owned, uh, in terms of which Russian service was responsible for interfering in the 2016 election and, and sort of seconding and um, subverting our democracy, uh, it really has owned that, that, that portfolio. But one of the things you learn is, and we have a former FBI agent here, so he can either confirm or disconfirm this. Oftentimes, the, the, the intelligence that the U.S. Uh, government has got on somebody cannot be brought to light, and it can't even be brought to court because it's so classified, and prosecuting someone for a, a, a crime, a serious crime, such as espionage, would compromise the integrity of that classified intelligence. So the most famous case of this would be the Venona Project, which was a, a massive and decades-range or decades-long uh, signals intercept um, program, whereby traffic being sent from New York and Washington, D.C. to Moscow was hoovered up by the U.S. government. And this traffic, in some cases, named by actual name, but more often by code name, and you could piece together who they were referring to, known Soviet spies. Um, these spies, though, in, in many cases, simply could not be prosecuted for espionage because again, doing so would disclose the existence of this highly classified program and it would compromise, it would burn sources, it would burn the intelligence. So instead they went after them for lesser crimes, perjury in many cases, getting them to lie, knowing that they were spies and they were, would deny it. Uh, if they were foreigners, getting them deported from the country. I think this is, this is known as gray mailing when it comes to uh, you know, prosecuting people for something less than what you know that they're guilty of. And this, this is something, you know, the big question I have about the entirety of this 
sort of counterintelligence investigation, Mueller to the SSCI, is what do America's spies know that we will not know as citizens, as public consumers of news and information until possibly not even years, but decades down the line? Venona was only disclosed by order of Senator Patrick Moynihan, I think in 1994. So you're talking about eight, eight decades after this, proje- this program was instituted and implemented. Um, what are we, what's going to tell, how long will it take for America to get full clarity, historical clarity on what has transpired in the last five years? That's the big question as a historian that I'm asking. And unfortunately, it's not one I can satisfactorily answer. I don't think it's one that any of us can satisfactorily answer right now. But I never thought Mueller was the definitive sort of Bible on what transpired. I don't think that even this investigation, this report by the Senate subcommittee is going to be that, even though it has moved the needle, I think, substantially. Um, it's going to take a long time. And unfortunately, you know, Americans don't like to wait. We, we're, we're sort of, we're junkies for instant gratification. So again, Bob Mueller did not frog march the president out of the Oval Office in handcuffs. Therefore, there's no there there. That seems to be kind of this sort of meta-narrative, particularly one that's pumped out by the pro-Trump media ecosystem, Fox News and Breitbart and the like. And unfortunately, that's just not the way these things work. Um, it takes a long time for the sort of pieces to fall into place. And I, that, that may sound like a cop-out to your listeners, but I, I'm telling you, it just isn't. I mean, we're still finding things out about Soviet intelligence penetrations going back to even before the Cold War, um, before the end of World War II. Uh, Well, you know, I I blame Susan Hennessy. It's people (laughs) who were, you know, like in the office of general counsel at the NSA that stopped us from learning the truth. My individual fault, really. And I'm here to atone for those (laughs) sins, David. Yeah, this is this is how you pay the price. You know, like I um everything Michael just said is correct. And yet, um, this is as forward-leaning as the U.S. intelligence community has ever been. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, the level of detail in the original ICA assessment, like, I almost fell out of my chair that that group of people would be willing to put that degree of operational detail in place. Um, And whenever I think about how much more we know in the intervening sort of in the three years about the specificity of sources and methods, this really is... um, um, you got to give them a little bit of credit for really, really trying to lean forward here. Um, you know, that said, I, you know, there, there is information that I, I think it'll take a really long time um, uh, before we know precisely what it is. And, and the more sensitive uh, uh, the source might be, the, the longer it might, uh, it might take. Um, that said, I, I want to go back to sort of the original question of um, how exactly do we have this institutional failure? How was there this failure of accountability? And, uh, you know, these people all, all appear to be um, walking free, although, of course, they too are now imprisoned along with the rest of us in their homes, uh, thanks to the president's failures on the uh, the pandemic. And that's, um, there's a, a bargain at the heart of the American justice system. Um, and that's what, that we want a lot of law enforcement independence, but we don't want complete law enforcement independence. Um, we made an intentional choice to place the Justice Department and the FBI within it um, under the political control of the president. I mean, if you talk to Germany that has a home secretary model, or Israel or other sort of mature democracies, they look at you and say like, but you see the issue here, which is like that system works
works great, unless of course they're investigating the guy in charge, then like there's a problem here. Um, and our response is yes, um, but this is what allows our Justice Department to prosecute uh, the war on drugs in the 1980s and then pivot to a war on terror. It's what allows an FBI to understand uh, and respond to the racial justice reckoning that's happening in the United States, right? This, this political accountability over law enforcement is it's really important. It's really intentional. Um, and we've grafted on all these norms and special counsels and other rules to sort of make ourselves feel better about like this uncomfortable thing that happens at the top, which is when the person in charge turns out to be the bad guy um, and he's willing to sort of protect his cronies. Um, but don't worry, the founders thought about that. They thought, well, you know, that he might, the traitor might use it to conceal his own instruments, uh, I believe was the way Alexander Hamilton put it. Um, so they said, don't worry, um, we're going to give Congress the power of impeachment. Um, and so if there was ever something so egregious um, that a president was plainly using his power over law enforcement uh, and, and executive branch uh, uh, institutions of justice, he would get impeached for it. Um, and so the real failure I think that we're seeing right now is that the impeachment remedy has been revealed to be at its core um, a raw count of how many members of the president's party happen to sit in the United States Senate at a time. And I don't think any of us can um, tell ourselves a, a more comforting version of that. Um, if this is not impeachable, if this is not enough to get someone impeached and removed, um, then, then essentially impeachment really is just a measurement of, uh, of party votes at a given time. Um, and that's a really, really big problem because that's not uh, a little deficiency that can be solved with a tweaking the special counsel's regulation or maybe we criminalize uh, self-interested pardons. Um, that's like the card right at the bottom of the house of cards here. And so I think the um, the degree of polarization um, and dysfunction and inability of Congress um, not to live up to its highest ideals, but to do the absolute bare minimum, the thing that the founders believed any any composition of the legislature in its right mind would certainly not tolerate this behavior. Um, when that fails, that creates really, really complicated follow-on effects. Um, and so while I, I think there's a, a lot of questions we need to ask ourselves about how do we reinforce norms, how do we restore and rebuild institutions sort of in a post-Trump era, what happens in the Department of Justice, what happens in the intelligence community, um, I really don't want to let Congress off the hook here. Um, even though today they happen to have provided a pretty solid document um, because ultimately the core institutional failure um, is, is theirs. Um, and, and that leaves the election and electoral remedies as, as the last line of defense. And so if the American people decide that what is in this document is fundamentally intolerable and a breach of our pre-political commitments to engage in a particular system on particular terms and care about things like free and fair elections and patriotism and basic decency, the American people don't care enough about that to vote him out of office, um, then there aren't going to be remedies. And anything else we're, we're going to do is, is really just going to be at the margins. Um, but I, I do think we need to really frame the nature of the choice at stake here in uh, Donald Trump has destroyed in a lot of different ways the, 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 the core concepts of checks and balance. Um, and if we sign off on that and give him a different uh, second term, um, 
things are going to be dramatically worse um, and they will be irreparably harmed. Um, and and I, I just don't think we should kid ourselves about the stakes of sort of November. Yeah, which goes to show that the Constitution actually seems to say at the moment, no one is above the law unless they're the president and they control more than 40 seats of the Congress. Um, Josh, and we've got about 11, 12 minutes here. So I, I, I go to you and then we'll go around yeah, for a quick I'll, I'll keep it under 12 minutes there. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this, you know, the, the Trump presidency has obviously uh, stress tested this fragile system that we've all described. Um, but it is also really uh, uh, shined a big spotlight on, you know, we, we constantly talk about these norms and it can be a little eye rolling at some point to talk about the system and the norms that, you know, that it, allow it to function on any given day. But it's so important because, you know, if the American people think that government operates based on laws uh, and, and there, there isn't something else, they're, they're just wrong. I mean, you look at Trump's relationship with the criminal justice system, uh, his assault on these institutions of justice, his corruption of the, in, of the system of justice in, in different circumstances. Those aren't laws that have been violated, but those are these important norms. So, for example, when the president and his attorney general, Bill Barr, uh, are in you know, such close lockstep where you have the AG that's parroting the president's talking points and vice versa, and you have you know, obviously certain decisions being made by Department of Justice leaders, that calls into question this historical independence between the White House and the Justice Department. And that's for a reason. And, you know, obviously, I, I came from the from the Department of Justice from the FBI, so I might be a little biased, but we're not talking about the Department of Agriculture or the EPA, which are very important institutions, obviously, in their own right. But when we talk about the Justice Department, we're talking about the one entity in the federal government that has the ability to deny someone their liberty, to destroy lives. And that is an important responsibility that, you know, ethical people inside these agencies take very seriously, that you know that what you do uh, can impact lives. And so you try to do so in an ethical way. And the reason why there's been this historical independence is because you don't want political entities, uh, you know, affecting the day-to-day -day operation of the system of justice. But that norm has been bulldozed by the Trump administration uh, in many different ways. And, and, you know, we keep talking about these norms. Uh, you know, I, I would say, uh, for the, our listeners, two books that you should go pick up. One is actually Susan's book, uh, Un, uh, Making the Presidency. And there's another book called How Democracies Die by two Harvard political scientists. And it's important to talk about these norms because in the latter book, these uh, two uh, Harvard pr professors describe the norms as democracy's guardrails. And that is that, you know, if, if this if system is to operate as we expect, you need these guardrails to say, hey, you're about to go over a cliff. Uh, you know, if an, any leader is allowed to do this, if any authoritarian is allowed to do what they want to do, we're going to be in a very bad place. But obviously, you know, the president has continued to test that system time and time again. And so I think it's important that we, we continue to mention this, that we continue to bring it up, because we're not talking about something as simple as, as what a legislator can vote on. We're talking about uh, this, this very sometimes nebulous system of norms. And the last thing on that point I want to say, and this is what, you know, it, as a journalist, I'm not going to tell people who to vote for, that's up to them. But the one reason I think that the president has succeeded uh, in, in you know, doing what he's done to the Department of Justice and to these other agencies is not only because his enablers and the party leadership, but also because he lacks shame. And that is important because so many of the norms that we have are based on someone being afraid to be shamed. 
So if the president steps up in front of a microphone and lies to the American people, historically, politicians have worried that they would be shamed, and that's a bad thing. If the president fires an FBI director because he's concerned about how a particular investigation uh, regarding an associate is going, there's this amount of shame in being called out for that. This president has no shame. I mean, he'd probably be the first to admit it. He has a very healthy ego. Um, so that whole combination of things, I think, has gotten to where we are. So going back to your point. Okay, so we got eight minutes here. So two minutes to, to each of you, and it's a big question. But the question we have to ask, looking at this, looking at this information, is where does it lead? And it's not just where does it lead in terms of, you know, how does the Trump administration collude with the Russians and others in this election, although that's one dimension of it. Uh, it's also what do the Russians do in this kind of a circumstance? We've got today... Uh, the you know them uh, poisoning uh, the, the the leader of the opposition there. We have them on the verge of perhaps mm -hmm. stepping into Belarus. They don't play by rules. They don't play by norms. They don't have shame in their equation. They don't have oversight. They try to take maximum advantage of the situation. And so, at home and abroad, in the course of the next eleven weeks, 10, 10 weeks, what are you looking for? that carries this story forward in terms of intervention here or otherwise, Natasha? Yeah, so one of the things that we've been reporting on extensively is the ongoing kind of disinformation campaign and, and interference effort that's being waged by pro-Russian and Russian-supported actors. Um, in this case right now, that would be certain uh, Ukrainian figures, Ukrainian members of parliament, who are trying to essentially launder information that they are getting from, again, you know, Russian figures through Congress. And in a way that they were able to launder through the media in 2016, their tactic seems to have shifted. Um, and now they're actually using um, unwitting or witting, however you want to frame it, members of Congress um, to do these investigations and legitimize them. So one of the things that we've been looking at is how much this disinformation campaign surrounding Joe Biden and his relationship with Ukrainians and this whole allegation that he's corrupt, how much that is going to continue to escalate um, up until the election. Um, members of the campaign that I've spoken to are really concerned that there is some kind of September, October surprise that the Russians could pull um, because they are desperate not to have Joe Biden in office. Um, given that the president has not had a bad thing to say about Vladimir Putin and has really not held him accountable in any way, not even for Russian bounties on American soldiers in the Middle East. Um, it doesn't seem like there is any deterrent effect in place for them to continue to escalate these attacks. And I, I think that a lot of people in the intel community and in the campaigns and um, even, even some people in the administration right now um, have said that they're not sure where this is going to go and that the Russians have been very quiet um, in terms of um, um, trying to hack into election infrastructure. They're not seeing nearly the level of activity that they saw in 2016. And one national security official said, okay, so what are they doing instead? Um, and that is where they say that they still have kind of a blind spot and they're concerned that this is going to continue to um, escalate through, uh, through the election. Michael. Yeah, I mean, whereas in 2016, it was um, fake accounts on Twitter and Ruble bought ads on Facebook, I actually see it tending in a different direction. So you've got um, an electorate that is deeply 
divided and, and in fact polarized. You've got the kind of pro-Trump right. You also have elements on the far left who are essentially carrying water for the Kremlin position, um, whether it's to dismiss any allegation of a conspiracy or even to suggest that the Russians simply did not interfere in the 2016 election, poo-pooing the GRU Taliban bounty story, which has actually been even more corroborated over time, even though a lot of people, especially on social media, seem to think it's been debunked because there has been some controversy or discrepancy in, in the uh, confidence of the assessment among the various U.S. intelligence agencies. It's funny, I, I spoke to a, um, an FSB officer who defected and ended up working as an informant for CIA and FBI, and he was resettled in the States. And I said, so, you know, you're, you're a Russian spy um, for most of your professional life. If, if you're reading the tea leaves, what do you do? And he said, actually, you don't have to do very much this time around. Um, you've got a president, in, a man in power with the control, not just of the executive branch, but essentially the media in the sense that what he tweets or what he says or what he does becomes the overwhelming news coverage for the next 24 to 48 hours. Um, he is acting well within the Russian government's interests on a host of issues, whether it's troop withdrawal or allowing the Turks to invade Northeast Syria and ceding a third, third of U.S. protectorate territory to, uh, you know, kind of joint Turkish-Russian controlled uh, zone or, um, you know, the, the administration, as, as Natasha's pointed out, where it's been good on Russia, it's not, it's been in spite of Donald Trump, not because of Donald Trump, because of these sort of safeguards that have been in place or, or essentially the government tying the president's hands, such as CATSA, the congressional sanctions that were passed uh, several years ago. Um, so the FSB defector's position was, we don't want to do too much because if we do another replay of 2016, this is going to ratchet up sanctions. And then if Joe Biden wins, the retaliation is going to be severe. You're going to probably look at sectoral sanctions, the kind of things that the Russian government simply cannot afford, not going after elites or, you know, government connected, mobbed up banks, but hitting hitting the broader Russian population, which is then going to really affect Vladimir Putin and, and his poll numbers, however confected they may be to begin with. So I think they're, they're, they're the Russians, they'll do something, but I think they're going to play it a little more conservatively this time around. This seems to be kind of a prevailing view that I'm hearing, not just from somebody who used to work for the Cheka, but also from uh, Western intelligence. They, 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 as Natasha pointed out, it's, it's much more muted, at least so far. And there's only, what, three months to go. So... Okay, Susan and and then Josh briefly. Yeah, I've been listening to both um, Michael and Natasha's answers. Um, you know, what sort of comes to mind is um, why would the Russians need to do all that much this time? Um, so I don't really believe that uh, the Russian intelligence services, either military or otherwise, actually the ability to change the outcome of the U.S. election. Like, they aren't that good. Uh, if they really were, they'd be making millions of dollars as uh, political consultants instead. Um, so I, all they can do is ins is uh, insert uncertainty um, and sort of create chaos. Um, and they needed to do a lot of that and really sort of hedge their bets and spread it all around in 2016 to see what would stick. Um, but now they don't need to do any of that because Donald Trump is president of the United States and he's going to be president of the United States at, the, at a very minimum between November 3rd and January 20th, 2021. Um, and so if I was 
was a Russian intelligence agent. Um, and I just really wanted to cause as much damage as I could using the tools available to me. Um, all I would need to do is give Donald Trump one credible point of uncertainty um, and then let him decide what to do with it. Um, or any individuals that were motivated to uh, dispute or undermine or fail to uh, uh, accept the uh, valid outcomes of the U.S. election. Um, and if your goal is just to insert just enough uncertainty that a good faith expert has to say, well, it's probably fine, but I can't say with a 99% certainty, right? And you, you capitalize on the, ace, the asymmetric nature of sort of good faith engagements on these topics. Um, I would think, speculatively, you could do a tremendous amount of damage um, just by giving somebody the opportunity. Um, and then if they don't use it, then you're in a much better position in a Biden administration, right? You're, you're at much less risk of sanctions. Um, and so at the end of the day, um, it, Donald Trump really is, is the person that's going to decide uh, to what extent the, the sort of Russian strategy is going to pay off or not. Um, and Again, that's speculative. Um, uh, maybe it's too conspiratorial and I should uh, extend more benefit of the doubt to Donald Trump to be a responsible actor. I'm sure there's um, uh, many sort of Trump supporters who would think that was a tremendously unfair statement. Um, but I, I think we have to sort of put ourselves in the minds of um, what an adversary with the tools and motivations that um, I think we have a pretty good sense of, of where Russia is at and, and what they would do in this moment. Um, and I, I do think we need to... Um, uh, really think through um, even what uh, 18 months ago would have felt like completely fantastical scenarios. Um, because that's the only way we're going to be able to sort of shore up our institutions and be prepared to get through. Um, you know, what I think everybody has to acknowledge is going to be a tremendously perilous moment in American history. No doubt. Josh? Yeah, well, you look at around the world. I mean, obviously, we're focused on a domestic election right now, but you look at what's happening in Belarus and, and other parts of uh, you know Europe as well. You see, in my judgment, a direct result of President Trump's uh, you know his willingness to allow Vladimir Putin to essentially do what he wants. Uh, you know, a constrained Russia with a powerful United States that's actually you know has historically uh, cared about things like the values that this country has projected. Uh, for, for so long would be, you know, screaming from the rooftops, uh, gathering coalitions together to try to box in some of the actions that we've seen. We've seen none of that, obviously. I mean, you look no you know, further than Helsinki and all the other instances that we've seen time and again, where the president continues to, you know, essentially bow down to Vladimir Putin. Thing is, you know, that washes over us now. We continually hear that. Uh, but there are direct consequences. And as we speak right now, you have uh, people that are facing that in, in real time uh, that see the results of a corrupt election, uh, you know, in a country that, you know, most Americans may, may not be following. But that is those are the results of the American government's inaction and in actually holding, you know, autocrats like Putin to account. Um, you know, one thing that just to bring it home domestically, I'm also not so much optimistic about what the intelligence community, what federal law enforcement, where I used to serve, uh, how aggressive they actually are now in trying to go after these foreign actors because you could take yourself back to 2016 and you know this may now just be a blip on the radar but you know there was this great debate going on inside government about do we call out what the Russians are doing we saw it as Michael mentioned all these actions by the GRU uh, to go after the DNC to you know weaponize this data we saw it in government but the question was do we call it out? And then President Obama was actually concerned. Uh, you know, the president says he was out to get him. I mean, President Obama was actually concerned that by uh, 
being forward leaning, he would be seen as perhaps uh, trying to you know use levers of government to help Hillary Clinton. Uh, but there was this great debate about what to do, and ultimately the government decided, I think, around October to actually do something. But by then, you know, the election was already uh, upon us. Right now, you have a president who, as our reporting has indicated, uh, his own people don't want to bring him information about Russia. They don't want to bring him information that might anger him. And so that doesn't bode well in a commander in chief who's actually concerned about protecting uh, American, you know, th this very sacred process of voting for our, our next officials. So I, I think that there's this question out there about how aggressive these agencies would be. And even if, you know, the ground level rank and file people, the FBI agents, the CIA case officers, the analysts and folks at NSA and other agencies, even if they're very aggressive, I wonder how much of that would actually make it to the top uh, to a decision point where the president could actually do something about it. I'm not optimistic. It's not hopeful. It's not a hopeful answer, but it all goes down to this, you know, maybe a, a tired phrase now, but obviously elections have consequences. And that includes how the president of the United States treats the intelligence community. One final point I want to make, just because what Michael said earlier was so important about things that have taken some decades and decades for us to know is, you know, there, there, there is a lot going on right now. I'm sure that, that the U S intelligence community uh, that they're trying to grasp, they're trying to get their arms around. Uh, that's not going to come out before an election. That's not going to impact us, and it may be decades and decades. But the one thing that, that I think is so important, and this is what made me, uh, uh, Michael's great comments made me think about this, is that think about you know, the president's attack on these institutions, the so-called deep state, all of these agencies, yet so much of what they do is done in secret, even things that they know that are potentially negative to him. Um, you know, obviously in 2016, the FBI had his members of his campaign under investigation. They didn't release that because they did what they should have done. They did their investigation secretly. And so when you see how the president has been allowed to act the way he has without people in government coming out and saying, well, this is troubling, uh, that just really runs in the face of this whole deep state narrative because he's been allowed to act essentially with impunity um, in both going after our domestic institutions and also, you know, placating autocrats around the world. Well. It's a lot of food for thought. It's very disturbing. I think this, uh, those of you who have not looked at the SSCI report uh, really ought to do it. But of course, because this is an evolving story, I think the most important thing is to gather the best information and analysis you can. We've been lucky enough here today to have a kind of all-star team of four of the best experts that I know of anywhere who are tracking this with the most kind of attention to detail, perspective, and thoughtfulness. And so uh, one thing you should do is follow Natasha, um, Susan, Michael, and Josh in their uh, daily work because uh, it will bring more to light. And I think we're going to need that, particularly if there's a change in administration and there is going to be any kind of accountability at all following that. Uh, so... Uh, I, hope, I hope sometime they'll come back here. But in the meantime, I want to thank them for joining us. I want to thank all of you for joining us. And I want to encourage you to go to the dsrnetwork.com to see what else we've got in store. There's a lot coming. Uh, and if you have a moment, uh, don't hesitate to uh, click on the little membership thing and become a member and help support this kind of thing. This is a great discussion. And I hope uh, if you're interested in more discussions like it, you'll come back and do that. So thanks, guys. And uh, uh, everybody uh, stay uh, healthy out there. Bye-bye.